So hi, everybody. Today is Tuesday, November 21st, 2023, and we are delighted to have a return guest. Gail N will be sharing with us today. So Gail came into the rooms in 2008 and lives, comes from and lives in Bolton in Greater Manchester in the UK. So Gail, it is over to you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much. Hi, everybody. My name's Gail and I'm a compulsive overeater and I am so, so pleased uh, to be here. Um, You know, there was a long time in my story, my journey, when I didn't think I would ever have any hope to share. And thankfully, that is not the case today. So if you are a newcomer, if you are struggling, you are in the right place. And um you know, what I'm going to share with you today is just my story. Um, I believe that we have a common disease. I believe we have a common solution in this program. But I've also seen that this, this disease can show up differently in different people. So if you don't identify with my story, please don't let that put you off, because I absolutely guarantee you will find somebody in these meetings that absolutely has your story. And um can be a shining beacon of recovery. Um, What I'm going to share today as well, I just want to say that a lot of it is not Gail original. Um, You know, I am an avid reader. I am an avid listener of podcasts. And I tend to incorporate things that I have heard that have really resonated um, with me when I share. Um, So I am not some sort of um, recovered fellow who has got everything together. Um, Trust me, I'm not. Um, And I've, as Alan said, been in the room since 2008. Um, I had five years incredible recovery, followed by a seven year relapse. And I have been back in the rooms uh, since March 2000. And I've been abstinent since the beginning of April that year. And, you know, following the instructions in this book, this is my um, this is my big book, uh, completely uh, falling apart. It's actually in two two bits. Um, and I was told by somebody that if a big book is owned by somebody and it's falling apart, it usually means that its owner isn't. Um, I love all literature, um, OA and from other fellowships. Um, and I'm an avid reader of that literature. But following the instructions in the big book um, to bring me into a connection with a higher power, I believe for me, for this compulsive overeater, is is what has saved my life. Um and I guess for, for me, um, I think, Alan, you've got some photos uh, that you're going to share because they probably tell my story uh, better than I can kind of articulate um, to you. Uh, so there's just a little collection of, of photographs that kind of sum up uh, my journey. Um, the first two on the top left um, show me as a little girl. Um, and the day I got married and you can see that I am a, a kind of normal weight um, around that time. Um, my compulsive overeating hadn't really manifested itself then. Um, but when I got married and I realised that I could eat what I want, when I wanted, how I wanted, I could buy what I wanted. Um, you know, my mum wasn't cooking for me and, and serving my meals. Um, that's when my problems really, uh, really started and, and took off very, very scurrily. Um, the next picture on that top row is um, I'm actually in Paris. The, I say celebrating very loosely because there wasn't much celebrating going on. I was very, very miserable. Uh, my 40th birthday in Paris. And um, that was kind of, um, you know, 
right in the middle of of my disease, um, utterly miserable, um, you know, incapacitated by my weight and kind of hating my life. And then the next picture on the the top um, is actually about three months, three or four months um, in recovery in 2008. Um, and that was a um, a very special person's wedding. Um, and that was the first dress I had bought from a non-plus size dress shop in a very, very long time. The bottom, uh, the left one uh, shows me in recovery. So that's probably around kind of 2010. And then the next two photographs show me um, at the height of my relapse. Um, you know, the weight that I had lost went on scarily quickly. I was probably putting about a stone and a half on every month. Um, don't know what that is in pounds, but I'm sure somebody can work that out. And um, yeah, I was um, in the depths of despair in, in both of those photographs, uh, dis despite smiling uh, when I look at those photographs it doesn't look like there's a huge amount going on in in my eyes and I have a a really deep felt compassion for the woman in those pictures that were, was really trying her best um and the last picture is kind of what I look like now um so yeah thank you for sharing that and I guess you know my my step one experience um with the food could not have been clearer. Um, I know in my heart and soul that I am completely powerless over food. And if I'm not in re recovery, my life kind of looks like, um, you know, food is the most important thing in my life without exception. If I'm awake, um, I'm either being tortured by food thoughts or I am eating. That is my entire experience when I'm not in recovery. Um, I am very physically incapacitated by my weight, simple things like standing over, turning over in bed, um, showering, um, worrying that I'm going to break a chair when I sit in it, worrying that I'm not going to fit in a in a booth, um, in a restaurant. Um, all of those things are my reality when I am not in recovery. And, you know, this disease took me to um, a top weight of 345 pounds. And I know absolutely that this disease hadn't finished with me um, because I have the ability to eat myself to death. And my disease got so much worse over a period of time, so much worse. My binges were horrendous. Um, it forced me into isolation because I, I couldn't um, I couldn't eat um, in, in front of people when I was binging. Um, and I would easily consume enough food for 10 to 12 people in, in one sitting. And despite the consequences of which there were many physically, emotionally and spiritually, I can't stop if I'm not in recovery. I just cannot stop eating. And I would do a lot of my binging in the evening and I would go to bed thinking, feeling so physically horrendous. I would think that I wasn't going to wake up in the morning and I would promise myself that that was the last binge. That's the last time that I am going to do that to myself. And I would wake up in the morning with that same resolve. I'd get in the shower with that same resolve. I'd get ready for work with the same resolve. And then I'd arrive in the kitchen and I would eat a mountain of sugar for breakfast or just pack a carrier bag with so much sugar to eat on the way to work. Um, and that was that was my life. You know, there were literally weeks and weeks on end when I put nothing in my body but sugar. How I am sat here today in a, in a healthy body, I have no idea. It's a miracle. And I tried everything, absolutely everything to control my weight and nothing worked. It might have worked for a little period of time, uh, but in the end, 
you know, I couldn't even stick to a diet for two hours. You know, I'd, I'd have all the resolve. I'd have all the books out. Monday would be day one. And then by half past 10 in the morning, I'd be in my binge foods. And I realized that I have truly lost the power of choice when it comes to food, if I'm not in recovery. And it says in the big book on page 24 that at a certain point, and I'm going to talk about it in, in compulsive overeating terms. At a certain point in the eating of every compulsive overeater, they pass into a state where the most powerful desire to stop overeating is of absolutely no avail. And that is me. I just I just cannot stop. Um, and, you know, the, the craving decided, the mental obsession decided when I was going to binge and when I would stop because I was eating against my will. And. Again, in the doctor's opinion, it talks about we're eating to overcome a craving beyond our mental control. And that made so much sense to me because that's why I can't stop, because I am just not in control when I am in that place. So that was kind of the first part of step one. When it came to the second part of step one about my life being unmanageable, I found that a bit harder to accept because externally, it didn't really look like I'd got a lot of unmanageability in my life. You know, I had a really good job. I'd got to the top of my profession. Um, I was married. I've got two great kids, a lovely home, fabulous friends. So I really struggled with that. How, how can my life be unmanageable? But actually, when I looked at my life, honestly, and how I felt on the inside, I just kind of resided in this place where I was full of fear. I was full of resentment anger. Um, I was self-obsessed. I didn't feel good enough. Um, I tried to control everything because if you just behave like this, I would be okay. Or if, if you just would do this, then I would be okay. And, you know, I absolutely had to accept that the unmanageability in my life is because my life reads like the examples in the big book, you know, the doctor's opinion, restless, irritable, discontent, um, the bedevilments that are described on page 52. I have trouble with personal relationships. I'm full of fear. And then I am just the person that's described on page 60, the actor. I am, you know, I'm just an actor, but I'm trying to direct everything. I'm trying to tell the other actors how to say their lines and where the light should go. And that's what I do in, in life. And I had to really accept that, you know, I may be capable in many areas of my life, but something with sugar in has the power to bring me to my knees. And that's what I had to, to accept. And then my step one experience was re-emphasized in relapse. And, you know, I had, as I said, five years recovery. My life was amazing. I was a healthy body weight. Um, I had a great job. Ev everything in my life was going great. I was sponsoring. I was working a, a hard program. Um, I was giving service at a national level. And my life was so good. I started to think it was a gale job and not a God job. And my recovery started to unravel really, really quickly. And, you know, I genuinely do not believe that relapse has to be part of your story. I think the big book is really clear on what we have to do to stay in recovery. And, you know, the big book predicts on page 14 what happens. And this is exactly my experience. Um, so if a compulsive overeater or if Gail fails to enlarge and perfect her spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, then Gail is not going to survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. And that's exactly what happened to me, because all of the things that I needed to do to keep my recovery, my life got so good 
I stopped doing those things. So it was very subtle at first. I don't need to go to that meeting. I don't need to do that. Um, maybe I'm a bit too busy to sponsor this many people. Um, and, you know, my my recovery just unraveled. And, um, you know, Christmas Day night, 2013, uh, when everybody had gone to bed, I just took one spoonful of one of my binge foods and the disease just sucked me right back in it there was nothing subtle about it um it 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 just absolutely grabbed me by the throat and sucked me back in and I can I can see looking back and I'm going to share some of what I've learned I can see looking back that there was a process that went uh, with that, you know, recovery is, uh, sorry, relapse is not just a one-off event. It is it is a process. And that was my experience. Um, and one of the things I understand now, I, you know, I am, I am grateful for my relapse because it gave me a much bigger understanding of this disease and a much deeper understanding of the solution. Because when the big book's talking about step three on page 63, it kind of sums it up because what it's saying is that I enter into a contract with my higher power and my higher power will do for me what I can't do. So give me this abundant life of recovery, but I've got to do two things. That's my part of the contract. The first thing is I've got to stay close to my higher power. And how do I do that? Well, I work the steps four through nine to get close. And then I stay close to my higher power in steps 10 and 11. And I perform my higher powers work well, which I understand is step 12. So if I do those two things to the best of my ability, I appear on a daily basis to get this incredible reprieve from compulsive overeating. But what my relapse taught me is I cannot let up on that. I cannot let up on that action because if I do, I stop enlarging my spiritual life and I am going to end up back in the food. And that is completely what, what relapse taught me. And, you know, when I came back in um, 2020, I had a huge amount of shame about relapse. You know, I looked very differently because all the weight had gone back on and then some, and I just had so much shame. And I heard a fellow once say that um, shame stands for should have already mastered everything and I and I love that because that kind of that kind of has a compassion in it that says you know what relapse was part of your journey Gail um, and and that's the reason why I feel so passionately about sharing about it because shame nearly killed me you know and I wasn't one of these people who stayed in OA in those seven years I was in and out of OA like a ping pong ball I think I'd surrendered, I'd come back, I'd get a sponsor, I'd start doing work, then I'd be off again. Then I'd come back in, out, in, out, in, out. That's what I was like. And, and it was the shame, you know, it was pre-pandemic. So um, I was in physical meetings. Um, I was sat with people who'd known me recovered. You know, um, I um, was 168 pounds heavier and I was just full of shame so much so that I couldn't hear. I couldn't hear what was being said because I just felt like, kind of my skin was inside out and I didn't want to be here. And, you know, I, I will be forever grateful to some beautiful, beautiful fellows who just sat with me, held my hand, hugged me. I was crying in most meetings, told me I was going to be okay, told me I was welcome. Um, and, you know, I understand today that I am not a bad person because I have this disease. You know, I am a sick person who is trying to get well. 
And then as I came back into recovery, again, I, I really understood what it talks about in the promises that, you know, no matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will find that our experience can benefit others. And, you know, I know that my story can help other people. It can give people hope who are in relapse. And, you know, it can be quite a powerful lesson to people who are recovered and haven't relapsed because I can share my reflections on, on what I did um, and, you know, what, what happened to me. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a line in the big book that talks about alcohol being a great persuader. So, you know, food is a great persuader. It finally beats us into a state of reasonableness. And sometimes this was a, a tedious pro process. Um, and for me, it was a very, very tedious process because I never thought I would get back um, into recovery and I would get my recovery back. And, you know, today that's very different. So, as I said, I, I came back in March 2020. Um, I immediately started to commit my food to somebody. Um, and I still do that today. Um, I listed my problem foods and my problem food behaviours. And that informed my plan of eating because I need a plan of eating that is going to silence the physical allergy, that is not going to trigger that physical allergy. And um I cannot have ambiguity around food. If a food, if food, if a particular food is a problem for me, it has to go. That that is my, you know, an alcoholic doesn't get well by taking occasional sips of whiskey. And that was my experience. Um, one of the things that helped me was thinking about, you know, how would a higher power feed me? You know, what would a higher power want me to eat? Uh, you know, a loving, kind higher power. And, you know, my my higher power would want me to enjoy food. This is not about eating stuff that I don't like or I don't enjoy. Um, and when my food is right, I have complete neutrality. And that is just absolutely priceless. I don't I don't obsess about food. I enjoy it. Um, I'm a cold water swimmer. So usually before breakfast, I've been in some body of wild water somewhere that's very cold. This morning was 7.2 degrees. It was absolutely freezing just in my swimming costume. And I am really, really ready for my breakfast. And I really, really enjoy my breakfast. But the difference is when the pots go in the dishwasher, I'm not thinking I need more. I've enjoyed it and I have complete neutrality. And I know that that is going to sustain me until my next meal. Um, I got a sponsor really early on. She took me through the big book, um, took about three months. We read the big book line by line, page by page, chapter by chapter. Um, and I know today that availing myself of good sponsorship, and that's not about the quality of my sponsor, that's about me availing myself of a recovered member is really important because I can only see what's going on in the rear view mirror. So being honest with my sponsor as I possibly can, as I'm able to, um, is, is really, really critical. Um, I've released 168 pounds. I don't weigh myself anymore because I kind of tend to wear very fitted clothes. So it would be really obvious if I was, I was gaining weight and I can get very, very obsessive about the scales in a healthy, pain-free body. Um, I use the tools and I live in the big book because that's what quietens the mental obsession. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that um, in, in kind of what I've learned. Um, gratitude is really important because I have a disease of more. And even though I have got this really abundant life, 
Uh, sometimes it feels like it's not enough and I need more. You know, if there's any love going, I want it all. If there's any praise going, I want it all. So starting my day off or finishing my day with gratitude is, is really important. And so is self-care, because for whatever reason, I find it really, really difficult to do things that are good for me. So I know drinking lots of water is good for me. Getting enough sleep is good for me. Uh, not binging Netflix is good for me. But those things I find really, really difficult. Um, and having a practice around self-care, very imperfect practices, is really important for me. Um, and I have to remember I am powerless over food and people and places and things, but I am not powerless over the actions that I can take. You know, I have a wonderful higher power, but she's not going to go to the supermarket and do my food shop and she's not going to cook my dinner. I have to do those things. But what she does do is remove the food obsession from me. Thank you. There's a lovely line in, in the big book that talks about, you know, here was something at work in a human heart which had done the impossible and the impossible has happened to me. You know, you've only need to look at my photographs to know that, you know, I have a disease. If I had a choice in this, then I wouldn't have eaten myself to the point that you saw in those photographs. Um, they remind me that I have a higher power because I cannot do this myself. I can't sit in front of you at a healthy body weight on my own. And, you know, they're also a good reminder of where self-reliance takes me. So I'm just going to finish with um, sharing some of the things that I've kind of learned along the way, because, you know, this this may help somebody. And, um, you know, for me, the identification that I get in these rooms is absolutely critical, because when I came into my first meeting back in 2008, um, which somebody had told me was a really big meeting uh, compared to the first meeting I went to, which I think only had three fellows. And they said it was a huge meeting. And I walked in this room and there was over 100 people in this room. And I thought, oh, my God. And then I realized I'd gone in the wrong room and I sat with the choir and not in a room of uh, compulsive overeaters. So um, when I first walked in there, that identification was critical because I knew that other people were overweight like me. I could see that, but I genuinely had no idea that other people did with food what I did until people started sharing the stories. And then the, 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 the identification when I came back from relapse again was absolutely critical. And I, in my first week, uh, one of the intergroups was doing workshops on a Sunday afternoon. And I went to this workshop and there were three incredible women who were sharing about recovery from relapse with so much grace, acceptance um, it, and humility. It, it just kind of blew me wide open. And I thought, do you know what, Gail, your relapse is no worse than anybody else's. If you do what these women have done, you are going to get your recovery back. And that is my experience. And, you know, I have to keep my step one experience real because the further away I get from the hell of compulsive overeating, the easier it is for me to forget that I am a compulsive overeater. So, you know, I'm always grateful for people sharing the struggles sponsoring is really really critical you know if I'm helping a newcomer I am reminded of my of my own disease and you know where this disease can take me and you know step one I think is so critical that we have an identification and an experience with that because it takes the debate away it takes the higher power debate away because if I'm powerless I need a power and the only way I'm going to get that power because I can't do it other people can't do it for me is by working these steps, I have no other option. 
And the other thing that I learned is, is always remembering what I am and where I belong, because there's four things that make me different to my friends who might occasionally overindulge in food. You know, the first one is I have a physical allergy. There are certain foods or food behaviors that I cannot indulge in without triggering that physical allergy. And once the allergy is triggered, I absolutely cannot stop eating. So if I don't pick those problem foods up, then I'm fine. And that would be great, but it's not because I've got a mental obsession. So I've got a head that tells me that I need to eat certain foods and it's a compelling, seductive voice that I listen to. And, you know, I I then pick up those foods and then I can't stop. And that's very different to my experience of having a medical allergy with a particular fruit. So I never, ever eat that fruit because the consequences are horrendous. And my brain doesn't tell me to eat that. It doesn't say, well, you've not eaten it for six months. So why don't you try it and see if you still got that allergy or, oh, it's in a smoothie. You'll be fine with it like that. It doesn't say that. But when it comes to my alcoholic foods, that's what my brain tells me. The third thing is I can't tell the truth from the false. So I believe just this one, it'll be different this time. And even in recovery, my head can tell me that. I occasionally get thoughts that go, do you know what, Gail, it's three and a half years since you've been in the food, you know, you've got, you know, you've got a healthy body weight, you you look after yourself, you've got a, you know, a, a fitness practice, maybe you'd be okay having whatever it is. And immediately, I get that message from my higher power, you know, Gail, when has that ever worked? When has that ever worked for you? Why is it going to be different this time? And then the fourth thing is I have this mental blank spot. So my brain keeps me safe from walking out in front of a moving car. But when it comes to my alcoholic foods, my brain cannot keep me safe. It just does not work because all I can see in that moment is what food is going to do for me. It's going to make me feel better. I can't see what it's going to do to me. And that is, those are the four things that make me different from, from other people and that aren't compulsive overeaters. And, you know, the whole issue for me about relapse being a process, you know, I have to live my life to the best of my ability in steps 10, 11, and 12, once I've worked the steps, because they are the steps that keep me safe and continue to grow that relationship with my higher power. And if I'm not growing in my spirituality and my relationship with my higher power and my emotional sobriety, then I am going to end up back in the food. And I heard those steps described as the pipeline to the power. Um, and I heard a speaker say in step 10, I watch for me and I clear that channel. In step 11, I watch for God, my higher power, and I get my channel filled up. And then in step 12, I watch for others and I get to empty my channel so that so that it can be refilled. And I was also told that in step 10, I should watch for me with the same level of focus that I watch and judge others because I can be really harsh on other people's behaviors. And yet I want forgiveness and um, I want people to cut me some slack. So actually watching for my selfishness, my dishonesty, fear, whatever is, is really, really important because they are the things that block me from that power. And if I know in step one that I don't have the power and through working these steps, I come to be connected to that power, then 
that is how important keeping connected to that power is. And when I'm in resentment or envy or fear or whatever emotion it is, then I have a process through these steps to be able to reconnect me if I'm disconnected. And that is absolutely my experience. And the, the miracle of step 12 of working with others and just watching other people recover um, it is just incredible and I was really scared when I started sponsoring because I thought I was going to mess somebody's life up and of course I don't have that power and all I'm doing when I sponsor somebody is I'm shining a light on the text in the big book I am showing somebody the instructions in the big book that is going to connect them with the higher power and um, I'm just going to kind of finish with um, one of the the um, sentences out at the back of the big book that's in one of the stories, which um, I absolutely love because I think I'm, I must be coming up to time now, um, Noel, I'm sure. Um, and um, it's on page 199 and it says that I won't have to drink, so I won't have to compulsively overeat if I remember one simple thing to keep my hand in the hand of God. And I know today because of everything I tried and absolutely everything that I went back to in relapse, you know, the insanity, you know, the 59th time I go to this pay and weigh club, it's going to be different. It's going to work this time. And then going back to all of those things, um, you know, I that that absolutely showed me that the only way I can stay in recovery is through that connection with a higher power. And um, I am just so grateful we've got meetings like this where we kind of talk about relapse and we share experience, strength and hope around that, because, um, you know, that that period of time, that seven years when I was in relapse, knowing that OA was the only thing that had have ever worked for me. And being unable to, to kind of connect with the solution was absolutely soul destroying and terrifying because I genuinely thought this disease was going to take me out. And I just I just couldn't get it. I used to think, God, I am the only person that that can't get this. Um, thank you. And, you know, today that is not my experience. So if you are struggling or if you're a newcomer, please don't give up hope because recovery is possible. And I am for today, I might wake up with a whole new set of ideas next week. Who knows? But for today, I am a living testament to that. And I am so, so grateful. Thank you, everybody.